So we're actually going <clears> to <throat> begin this morning's message with a, a little bit of audience participation. I'm, I'm going to, uh, to begin to say a, a very common a Bible verse or phrase from the Bible. And when I pause, you're going to fill in the missing word. Um, and, and to make it easy for you, uh, when it's your turn, I'll, I'll point to you so, so you know that you're supposed to talk. And, and since it is audience participation, you're supposed to say it out loud. You know, in church, you know, parents, my parents taught me to have the church whisper. Um, you don't have to whisper this time. You can speak out loud because you're going to know these. I think you'll know most of them. They're all pretty common. I'll give you an easy one just for practice. We'll start with, if I was to say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That way, you guys got her down. Okay, so let's keep uh, going here. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Oh, you guys are going way early. That's good. Okay. Uh, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Yep. Uh, how about this one? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Oh, you're getting quieter here. You gotta... We'll boost it up here again. I am the Alpha and the Omega. There you go. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Uh, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, it's understandable if you would all say servant there. Most of our common English translations uh, translate the word that way. King James, NIV, CEV, ESV, most all of the, the modern translations. But as you probably guessed by now, since I'm making a big deal out of it, that's not exactly accurate, is it? The Greek word is doulos, slave. And... Uh, We've been uh, taking the last, uh, I don't know, five, six weeks here uh, looking at what it means to be a slave of Christ. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Uh, We had a parable from Jesus here, and in this parable we get to find out a little bit more about what it really means to be a slave of Christ. And, and then we're also going to use this parable to transition from our duties and obligations as a slave, which is what we've been focusing on over the past many weeks here, to the rewards and the benefits of being God's slave. So this parable found in Matthew 25 starts at verse 14. Then it's a fairly lengthy story, but I always think it's good to publicly read God's word. So uh, we'll do that. Follow along as I read out loud. Matthew 25, starting at verse 14, says this. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. 
You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. And I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But the master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Father God, we again ask that at this time you would be our teacher, that you would instruct us by the power of your spirit through your word to strengthen, to mature, to grow us. It's our desire, God, that this morning you would work in our hearts and lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this parable begins with the words, for it is just like. And of course, that then begs the question, what are we talking about? What is the it in this sentence? And to find that out, you have to go back to verse one of this particular chapter where we read the line, then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to, and he gives a couple of parables, you know, comparing what the kingdom of heaven is like. Uh, But then to understand this parable, of course, we need to know what did he mean by the kingdom of heaven or a synonymous phrase, kingdom of God, you see uh, in the Bible frequently. And and basically, if we're just going to make it a a simple definition, uh, it, it refers to the sphere of God's rule and dominion through Christ. But, but it was used in, in like three distinct ways in the New Testament. First of all, you have that future coming of the kingdom, like Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, that kingdom come, uh, that future coming where God's dominion and, and total and complete uh, control will be there and it will be experientially enjoyed by everyone on heaven and earth. And that's not going to happen until after the return of Christ. But according to the Bible, it's not just this future thing we're waiting for. There is a right now aspect to the kingdom. And it is expressed primarily through the invisible body of Christ made up of all true believers all around the world, the whole body of Christ around the world, as God exerts his influence in this world through his body, his his believers. But the third way that this phrase is used is uh, as a picture of the visible body of Christ, uh, a a local church most generally, uh, believers gathered together. Um, and, And that visible body of Christ is made up of professed believers, but not all of them are not necessarily genuine believers. In fact, if you go back in Matthew to to Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told a parable there called the parable of the wheat and the tares that illustrated this exact point. Um, uh, 
the, the, until the very end, there will be non-believers mixed in, the tares, the weeds, with the wheat. And the thing about a tare is it looks, looks and acts almost exactly like wheat. In fact, when they're very young, you can't tell the plants uh, apart unless you're very well trained. And so uh, because these unbelievers mixed in the church, they profess to trust God. Uh, some of them act like, you know, good church members for this or that. Uh, they are very difficult to distinguish from the genuine. And that's why uh, God didn't leave uh, the job of deciding who's real and who isn't up to me and you. Um, at the end of the age, God, the only one who can truly and accurately uh, see another person's heart, he's going to take care of that business. So currently, I mean, the only, the only way we would know for sure if someone who professed to be a believer uh, isn't is if they would choose uh, to walk away. Uh, that's what the Apostle John was talking about in 1 John 2.19 when he wrote, uh, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. So that indicates, you know, they were part of us and we really couldn't tell them apart, but they went out, that proved it. But they went out, it says, the last line, so that they would be shown that they are not of us. So uh, that's what's happening in the church nowadays. And, and it's an aspect of the kingdom of heaven. And it's in that visible sense, my life, your life, the whole life of the church together, that Jesus is using the phrase kingdom of heaven here in Matthew 25. And, and the theme of this particular parable is faithfulness in service. That's what, that's what he's talking about. And you have four main characters in this story. The first is the master. And in verse 14, uh, he's simply called the man. You know, a man's going on a journey here. But later on, he is specifically addressed and identified as the master. And, and that verse 14 also tells us he's going on a journey. And we don't learn until a little later on, but this was going to be a long uh, journey. Uh, he's going to be away for a significant period of time. And that's when we get introduced to the other three characters in the, uh, the parable who are all slaves. Um, and like a couple of weeks ago when we looked at another parable, the slaves in this particular case could either represent genuine believers or false believers. But they were all uh, under the master and in the master's household, the church, professing to be his followers. And it becomes clear later who, who is and who isn't. Now, because the master is going on this journey... Um, and, and again, the implication is it's going to be a lengthy journey. He calls these three slaves together uh, and, and, and gives them the responsibility and the authority to oversee his possessions. And, and, I, and I mentioned before, that was a very common practice in those days. Educated, uh, busy, business-savvy, well-trained slaves were often put in charge of the master's household and all his business affairs and, and his entire fortune. And generally, uh, a slave that was put into that position was then called a steward, uh, which is where we get our word stewardship from. Um, but in this particular case, he didn't just leave one st uh, slave in charge. He div divided it up between three. A and the idea uh, uh, and the point in the parable is, is he's entrusting all of his slaves. It's just, this is just a number to show that it's going out to all his slaves. But uh, look at how he divided it up in verse 15. To the one... Uh, he gave five talents to another two and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Okay? So a talent, uh, if you're wondering what a talent is, it's not a specific coin, but rather a measure of weight. 
So if we were really to make this in our modern-day lingo, we would say to one he gave five pounds of money, to another two pounds, uh, and it was probably silver. So one he gave five pounds of silver, another two pounds of silver, and another one pound of silver. Uh, that's the way it works out. A talent um, is that measure of weight. Uh, you've, you've probably heard of shekels from the Bible. A shekel is a specific coin okay, in the Bible. It took 3,600 shekels to make one talent. So a talent was a fairly significant uh, amount of weight. Uh, let me help you picture it this way. The common average day laborer working guy, okay, so he would be on the lowest end of the pay scale, uh, what we would call minimum wage worker uh, nowadays, right? Uh, he would make approximately 90 shekels a year. So a talent would be like 40 years worth of wages on that lowest end of the pay scale. That's a, a significant uh, amount of money. And, and so that tells us a couple of things, right? First, it tells us that this master was rich. I mean, he had a lot of resources. Second, tells us that these slaves were being entrusted with something that was truly valuable. And third... It meant that he had, a, uh, as slaves, they had a real responsibility and obligation to the master. So now, uh, the instructions that the master gave to these slaves, they're not recorded to us, uh, uh, for us in the Bible or in this parable, but it becomes clear what it was the master desired through the telling of the story. He expected that these slaves would use his money for his benefit, profit, and good. And that's exactly what the first two uh, slaves do. Uh, we read in verse 16, Immediately the one who had received the five talents went out and traded them and gained five more talents. And I like that word immediately, right? It's not like this guy loafed around for a while. You know, well, the master's gone on a long journey. I just take my time. I mean, I'll get to it later, this type of thing. I mean, he got right to work right away. And as a result, he was able to use his master's money to make more money for the master. Uh, when it says he went out and traded, that doesn't imply just like a one-time transaction, like, oh, I did this, oh, I got really lucky and doubled the money. It, it, it implies the idea that the entire time the master was gone, he was working and trading with this money, and it was at the end of uh, that time period that he was able to uh, accumulate a total of these uh, five talents. And, and the guy who received the two talents did exactly the same thing went to work, and, and used the master's money to profit the master. But the third slave took a totally different approach, right? Verse 18 says, But he who received the one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, that might you know, seem and sound a little bit strange to us, but that was a very normal way of dealing with large sums of money or, or precious items back in that day. I mean, Fort Knox hadn't invented their safes yet, and so if you wanted to keep something secure, the very best way to do that was to bury it where you were the only one who knew where those things were. That way, if someone came in and robbed your house, they're not going to get the best of your stuff. So that was pretty commonly done in those days. It was a, an acceptable way to keep treasure and to make sure you kept what you had. But the master here was not interested in merely keeping what he had. 
I mean, if he was, he could have buried it himself before he went on the journey, right? Then the slaves wouldn't have known where it was at. So that was not his, his interest or his intention. And this one slave, he should have known that at some point he was going to have to deal with the master. Verse 19 says, Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The time of reckoning had come. The master wanted to know what they had accomplished with what he had given them. And both the first and the second slave were able to show the master that they had multiplied his money for him. Uh, And the master answered both of them in the exact same manner, identical manner. That's why verses 21 and 23 are word for word the same. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. It's a whole boatload of money, but to the master, it's just a few things. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. But then comes the third slave. And he knew that just giving the master back his money was not going to cut it. So he immediately starts making excuses, right? And and the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. So basically, he was saying to the master, you know what? You are a mean, miserly, tight-fisted man. You insist on getting a return even when uh, in areas where you haven't invested. Therefore, his excuse keeps going, I did the only reasonable thing that could be expected for me to do, and I kept what was yours in a very safe place. So here you are. You've got what's yours. So how did that sit with the master? Well, not so well. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reaped where I did not sow, gathered where I scattered no seed. Well, then you ought to have put my money in the bank. So on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Essentially, the master is saying, Hey, if you really thought that I was this kind of guy, that I was this really mean guy who expected these types of things, even where I haven't invested, then wouldn't it made some sense for you to stick the money in the bank so at least I would get some profit back from it, the, the interest from it on my return? And basically, he was calling the slave's bluff, knowing that this was nothing more than a mere excuse for doing nothing. The slave was wicked because he was impugning the master's character. And he was lazy because he did nothing with what the master had given him. And as you can imagine, the outcome of those particular choices he made was not good. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now what's the spiritual point Jesus was trying to make with this story? What's, what's the lesson for us today? I think it's actually pretty clear and simple. As slaves of Christ, we are awaiting the Master's return. And in the meantime, He has given us the responsibility to work for His benefit and His profit. And when He returns, we will have to give an account for what we have done with what he's entrusted to us. Now, 
that might sound a little intimidating or scary, but I think we skipped over one very germane point to this illustration, and that's the concept found at the end of verse 15. The master handed out those responsibilities to the different slaves. It says, according to his own ability. Now, that alerts us to several very important truths, right? One, the master knew his slaves and what their abilities were. That's why he was able to give each one exactly what he knew they could handle and would best fit them. And isn't it a good thought to know that the master understands you inside and out? He knows you. And he knows what amount of work and what particular kind of work will fit you best. In fact, the Bible takes it a step further than, than even just knowing us. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You see, he doesn't just know us. He made us. He created us for good works, for whatever particular job or responsibilities he wants us to do. He's not just handing out arbitrary assignments to anybody. He, he, he instead is enlisting you to do exactly the way what he's wired you to do. The master knows you inside and out. I think that's a great point. Number two, he does not give his slaves more than they can handle. Right? He gave out the workload based according to their abilities, what he knew they could do, five, two, or one talents. So that means God's not asking you to do something that is beyond your capabilities. Now, I've got to throw a caveat on that. That doesn't necessarily mean it isn't necessarily going to be beyond your comfort zone. I have learned over the years that God really has this way of pushing us out of our comfort zone and into something new. And this also doesn't mean that it might not be beyond your own natural abilities. God wants us to learn to fully rely and depend upon Him. And the way we can rely and depend upon Him is, is not just by doing stuff that we already know we can do and handle. It's, again, by being pushed to go beyond. I mean, I think of the slave with just the one talent. He said he was afraid. And because he was fearful, he did nothing with that talent, thinking that that was going to be good enough just to return that to the master in the end. But again, God expects us to use what he has given us, not just hide it away. So we, we need to stop worrying about whether we have little or much, five, two, or one. And we need to stop being fearful uh, of whether or not we think we can be successful or not. That's not the point. The point is not your success, but your faithfulness to use what he has given you. Number three, the master himself gives the resources that we need in order to do the job that he assigns us. I mean, he didn't go on this great big long journey and then expect his slaves to make a whole lot of money out of nothing. He gave them the resources to do what he wanted to do in order to fulfill all of his wishes. And the same is true for me and you today. Besides our natural abilities that we're born with or our learned 
uh, abilities that uh, we may have gained through training and experience, every single believer comes equipped with a gift from God. Might be five, two, one, talents, whatever, but God is giving you the resources you need to work for Him. 1 Peter 4.10 puts it this way, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. By the way, did you know that our English word talent comes from this parable? I mean, it used to be just a measure of weight. But when this was translated into Latin and then to English, people started using the idea of talent for these abilities that God uh, has given us. And that's where that word comes from. Uh, Lastly, number four, the master believed these slaves capable of success. I mean, he left on this long journey giving all that money to the slaves. Again, I mentioned this is a whole lot of money. I did just a little bit of math just because I'm curious. If a person worked at minimum wage, because that's what the shekel would have been equal to, 90 shekels, you know, minimum wage, you're talking, uh, if a person worked at minimum wage for the next 40 years and the minimum wage never changed, you're talking $3.2 million for one talent. So, or no, I'm sorry, 3.2 for five talents. So, so he, was, he was giving a large sum of money. You don't do that unless you believe that person's capable of handling it and succeeding with it, right? If you're the person in control, if you're the master, he believed his slaves to be equal to the task. Again, think about that. That's an incredible thought. God believes in you. You know, we often talk the reverse, right? Well, do you believe in God? You know, do you believe God can do this? Do you believe God's that? Yeah, th- those are great, you know, things to, to talk about and work through. But did you also know that God believes in you? In what he's called you to do? And in the, in the tasks that he's assigned and handed out for you? He believes in your success. And yeah, I know. He knows all about your weaknesses. And he knows all about every one of your past failures. And he's still handing you responsibility and a gift. God believes in you. You can do what he's called you to do. So I said, lastly, that was the fourth point. Is the last one. There, there is actually a fifth point. But this one transitions us from the uh, duties to the benefits of being Christ's slave. And that's what we're going to begin looking at next Sunday. We have a master who is loving and kind and has chosen to reward faithfulness. And that's why he said to both of the faithful slaves who, who invested his money, enter into the joy of your master. So I'm a slave. I have duties and obligations, but I am happy to be in that position. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you clearly teach us of the expectations that you have for us as your slaves. And God, we do want to be faithful to them. And we're we're thankful that the success of what we do is not up to us, but up to you. You just ask us to be faithful. 
So God, I pray for each and every person here that we would faithfully take up the tasks that you've called us to, believing that you're going to provide every resource we need to do it, and knowing that the success of that is up to you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.